We are back in Second Samuel uh, this week. We're coming to the end of this uh, these two books of First and Second Samuel. We've been here for almost a year. May kind of bring up the question: Why spend so much time in the Old Testament preaching through a book that's about old dead kings? And this week we're going to read about these warriors. Well, remember what we've seen. Uh, God and His great plan and purpose of redemption uh, has saved and redeemed a people for Himself. He placed Israel in land that He promised to give to Abraham for the sake of the nations and led and, uh, and ruled over them through a king. A king of His own choosing. And what we've seen is that these books of First and Second Samuel are directing us as it was written to God's people originally, of what does it look like for God's people to faithfully and loyally give their hearts and their allegiance to following the king that God placed over them? Well, this king that God gave them had an heir. An heir, Jesus of Nazareth, who rules and reigns over God's people now and forever. And so these instructions to God's people in the Old Testament about what it looks like to live under God's King apply to us now, who still live under God's King. So we want to give our hearts and our attention to the Word of God and see how this chapter applies to us as God's people who hopefully are longing to follow and live faithfully before our God and our King. So if you would, look with me. We're in 2 Samuel chapter 23, looking at verses 8 through 39 this morning. If you're following along in one of the black Bibles there in your seats, this is on page 276. So follow along with me there in your copy of God's Word. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Jasheb, Bashathebeth. Atakanomite. He was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ohai. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. And the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And Yahweh brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, there uh, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the men fled from the Philistines, but he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and Yahweh worked a great victory. And three of the thirty chief, uh, or three of the uh, thirty chief men, went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, "Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate." Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. 
but he would not drink it. He poured it out to Yahweh and said, Far be it from me, O Yahweh, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, the chief of the thirty, he wielded his spear against three hundred men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the thirty and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. And Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of uh, Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two Ariels of Moab. And he also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaniah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, Uh, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three. And David set him over his bodyguard. Asahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the thirty. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. Shammah of Herod. Elkah of Herod. Helez, the Paltite. Ira, the son of Ikesh of Tekoa. Abiezar, Anathoth, Mebunai, the Hushathite. Zalman, the Ahohite, Mahari, the uh, Netophah, uh, Heleb, the son of Baana of Netophah, Ittai, the son of Ribai of Gibeah, of the people of Benjamin, Beniah of Pirathon, Hidai, of the brooks of Gaash, uh, Abi Alban, the Arbathite, Azmaveth of Baharim, Elhaba, the Shahalabanite, the sons of Jashan, Jonathan, Shammah, the Harahite, Ahiam, the son of Sharar, the Harahite, Elithelet, the son of Abishai, of Ma'akah, Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite, Hezro, of Carmel, Pa'arai, the Arbite, Ilgal, the son of Nathan, of Zobah, Bani, the Gadite, Zelek, the Ammonite, Nahari, of Biroth, the armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Ira, the Ithrite, Gareb the Ithrite, Uriah the Hittite. 37 in all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. That it is useful for teaching, for correcting, for rebuking, for training in righteousness. That we would all be thoroughly equipped for every good work. We believe and trust you that this is your word. And therefore, you intend it to accomplish your purposes in the hearts and the lives of your people. And we ask that you would do that this morning through your Holy Spirit, for your glory and your honor, as you make us more like your Son, Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen. Kids, there's no shortage of really cool pictures for you to draw out of this uh, account uh, today. So if you want to pick... Uh, a few of these mighty men and what uh, the author here of Second Samuel writes about them. Uh, you can draw me a few pictures of those and we'll add them to our, our, our art wall over there. Um, uh, as we look together uh, at this passage this morning, what we want to continue to ask ourselves is what does it look like as God's people to faithfully follow our God and our King. 
Notice, the first thing that we see is that if we're going to faithfully follow our God and our King, then we are going to need to stand up in the strength of our God. Notice, as we, we read about these guys, first, these, these first three here in verses 8 through 12, these three mighty men, we read of Joshub, who wielded his spear and killed 800 at one time. We read about this guy, Eleazar, who he gathered there for battle. All the rest of the men of Israel withdrew and fled away. But he rose, he goes out in the middle, and he continues to fight until he could not release the sword. His hand was so formed about it. We read here about Shema, who the Philistines are attacking. Lentils were important because they provided food for the people of Israel. God's enemies are coming to attack. Again, we read, the men fled from the Philistines, that's the rest of the Israelites, but Shema takes his stand in the middle of the plot and he defends it and strikes down the Philistines. Now, we read about this and we're like, I don't know if I can really relate to these guys. These military men, these great warriors. Well, I mean, maybe you could call them great warriors. Some of you may prefer to call them just crazy. You, you think a wise military man would recognize when the rest of my army is running and the Philistines are advancing, does it really make sense for one guy to step forward against 800, against 300, against an entire field of Philistines hungry for lentils? Maybe. Or maybe not. See, these guys are easy, either crazy or they know something. They know something the rest of the men of Israel have forgotten or don't know at all. You see, they know something about their God. You notice what, what it says. It mentions it twice. I think it applies to the other situations as well. Notice there in verse 10. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And Yahweh brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. In verse 12, Shema. He took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And Yahweh worked a great victory. You see, their strength doesn't come from themselves. It is God who is working in the midst of them. They recognize and understand that what God is doing, this isn't just about. It's not about military conquest really at all. Or power grabs. Or geography grabs in the Middle East. No, this is about a covenant-making and keeping God who has pledged Himself to Abraham and His heirs, not just for their sake so that they can have land, but so that the nations might know that there is a God in Israel who created all things, who rules over all things, and who is sending one to redeem all things. They 
recognize and understand that God has called them to battle and fight against His enemies for the sake of His name. You see, Israel here, they're, they're not just seeking to advance and grow an empire. It'd be interesting. You can go back and look. Look at, at the, the, the largest extent of David and Solomon's reigns and compare that to the other nations throughout ancient history. Look at Assyria and how much land they gathered. Or look at Babylon or Persia or Macedonia or Greece under Alexander the Great or what Rome accomplished. You see, they're out about grabbing land and expanding their power, but not so for Israel. Israel remained in the the boundaries of what God had given them because it was not just about military conquest. These men understood it, but at times when God is judging the sins of the nations around them and judging the Philistines, He's calling His people to move forward, both to claim the land that He's promised, but also to judge those who stand in rebellion against Him. God calls His people to stand up in the strength that He provides, even when it looks crazy. These men move forward and stand when everybody else is running because they're confident of the God who has called them to pursue and advance His kingdom because they trust that the promised one will ultimately come. Crazy things these guys are doing. Unless you know the God who gives strength, to those who trust and hope in Him when the enemy appears great and everybody else is fleeing and running and leaving you alone. What about Jesus? This King that the Old Testament pointed to and said was coming. Does He call His people to do crazy things? Well, not exactly like this. These military men. You see, if Jesus was about giving strength to His people to move forward and accomplish things with sword and spears, He wouldn't have called the followers around Him that He called. Think about His three. His chief three. Peter, James, John. Swordsmen? Not quite. Remember what Peter did when he did have a sword? You don't want to be around him. He tried to kill a guy and only cut his ear off, which Jesus healed. That's not what we're here to do, Peter. What were these guys? They're fishermen. And what did he say, I'm calling you to do? I'm calling you to be fishermen of men. That doesn't seem like a dangerous job. If in your mind you have sitting at the end of your dock, casting a reel in the water, or sitting out on an early morning when the sun's rising as you're trying to catch bass in your pond, or deep sea fishing with your buddies, no picture more deadliest catch where you're taking your life into your hands to move forward in the face of great danger to 
Redeem and save against forces that are against you and seeking to keep you from accomplishing what task your king has given you. It is a battle. It is a war. But it's not against flesh and blood. We're not to use sword and spears made of metal. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says as he reflects on what our calling is as the people of God and our need to stand up in the strength that our God gives us against what at times may seem like and appear like unsurmountable enemy forces. This is from Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that my words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I might declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Jesus does call us to invade the nations, but not with sword and spear, with the good news of the gospel. He calls us to battle against the evil one and his assaults against us, not with spear and sword and bow and arrow, but through prayer, through faith, through the power of the word of God. What does it look like For you and me to stand up in the strength of our God in the face of this onslaught that comes against us, when at times it may seem like other believers are falling away. To stand like Joshua and Eleazar and Shema. What does it look like in your own life To battle and fight against that sin that keeps seeming to rear its ugly head. Like Eleazar, do we continue to battle and fight and battle and fight, clinging to God's promises, clinging to His Word, standing in the strength that He gives us and not giving up? Why? Because we're so strong? No. Because our great King has made promises that He has defeated sin through His death on the cross and given you life and power through His resurrection. And you can fight. You can battle. 
for others of us, what it may look like is when to stand up in the strength that God provides is when you're invited to a party, high school party, college party, and you're there and the other kids from your, from your class or from your community are doing things that you know God has not saved and redeemed you to do. What it looks like in that moment to stand up and the strength that God provides is to just leave. To leave in the strength that He's given you and walk away because you know you've been saved and called to something else. It may look like as a captain of your team or a manager in your workplace when the talk on the bench or in the locker room or in the break room is dishonoring to God and the image bearers that He's made For you to stand up in the strength of God and say, no, we're not going to talk like this. In other places, it may mean in your community, in your school system, in your family, that you stand up for truth. Calling out what the the distorted minds and understanding of our culture thinks about bodies and gender and sexuality of speaking the truth of God in love, but recognizing it may cost you something to stand up for God in those times. It may mean standing up and boldly speaking and proclaiming the good news of of the Gospel to your hostile neighbor. To the family that you know, this may mean I do not get invited back for another holiday meal with them. It may mean being on your knees, calling and praying out to God on behalf of your children, on behalf of your spouse, asking Him to work and move and change their hearts that they would walk faithfully with Him and turn from sin and turn from rebellion. It may mean that you continue to forgive again and again and again. In your own strength, no. In the strength that your God provides. It may it may look like starting a school in a community. It may look like working faithfully for the Lord in the public schools. It may look like getting up day in and day out and discipling and teaching your own kids at school at home. You see, God has called us each to different things and different environments and different situations and different locations where He strategically placed us and equipped us in His strength to stand for Him and His kingdom. Why? Because our King stood boldly for us. He suffered and died to redeem and save us, His people, and He sends us out with this commission. Will we stand in His strength that He graciously gives us? See, as God's people, as we live faithfully before our God and before our King, we stand up in the strength that our God provides, but also we need to be prepared We need to be prepared to be poured out for the glory of our God. 
Notice in verses 13 through 17. And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David in the cave of Adulam, and a band of Philistines were encamped in the valley. Notice, remember what David says. Oh, that I had some, some water from the well in Bethlehem, his hometown. Well, there's a problem there. There's a garrison of Philistines, and we're under attack by them. But these three men hear their king's desire. They hear the heart of their king and the longing of their king, and they go forth to seek to please and honor him. They break through the Philistines. They get some water. They bring it back. And what does David do? All this labor, all this risk, all this seeking to honor him, He gets the water from probably these bloodied, dirtied, tired men. You notice what he does? He would not drink of it, it tells us there in verse 16. He poured it out. He poured the water out. Do you not value my work on your behalf, king? Did you not see what I did for you? I thought that I was successful, but then when I bring it before you, you pour it out, and it seems like all of our work and all of our labor and all of our blood and our sweat and our tears was for nothing. Do you care? Do you see what we did? But notice... He doesn't just pour it out. What does it say? He poured it out to Yahweh. David is saying that what you've done should be for the glory and honor of our God. This is not for me to drink. What you've done is is too great. I want to give it only to one, the one who deserves all the glory and honor, pouring it out on behalf of and giving it over to my God. Do you ever feel like these men may have felt in that moment? Like you're laboring for your God? Look, I've been trying to share the gospel with my neighbor like you've called me to, Jesus. And the relationship just keeps getting worse and worse. And they mock me. And I'm seeing no progress. Remember how you wanted me to stand up at that party? They all laughed at me. I'm the laughing stock of my school and nobody will hang out with me anymore. Do you not value what I've done? Do you not see what it cost me? It doesn't seem like I'm doing anything. Do you care? Are you going to use what I've done to accomplish anything? Jesus, I've been, I thought what you wanted me to do was to continue to forgive. That's what you've called us to. Your heart is one who is a forgiving king. You've forgiven me, and so I keep forgiving my family member. But you know what they keep doing? Rubbing in my face, taking advantage of me. 
I'm the doormat in all of my relationships for you. Do you care? I feel like I'm just being poured out. Are you going to actually use this to accomplish something? I thought I was making great work, but sometimes I wonder, does it matter to you? Here, it would do good for us to reflect on what we've been called to do. And that is to be prepared to be poured out. To be poured out for the glory and honor of our God. Sometimes it may look like great success, but other times it may look like great loss. But our God is glorified and He is honored through our faithfulness to Him. Think about Jesus' followers. James, he's killed before we even get out of the early chapters of Acts. Paul gets imprisoned. Jesus, what are you thinking? Don't you think it would have been a lot more effective for these guys to go free and to be alive a lot longer proclaiming the good news of the gospel, but you call them to death? But these guys had a different perspective. Remember when we went through the book of Acts? We talked about this a few weeks ago. When they suffered for Jesus, when they were poured out for Jesus, they considered it a privilege. Because their focus wasn't on what they were doing. Their focus was on being faithful to God where He had called them, no matter what it meant for them. Eager and ready to be poured out because the focus was the glory and honor of their God and trusting Him in His goodness and His kindness to use even what might look like loss and waste from our perspective for His glory and for His honor. I mean, think, what would seem like the biggest pouring out loss of all? You take on flesh and enter into our world. And you don't travel outside of Israel. You came at a time when there was no internet. Jesus, if you would have shown up now, immediately the whole world would have known. Yet you came at a time where only a few people could understand and know what was going on. And then you died and then you left. Why? To suffer and die and redeem and deliver His people and to entrust us with this calling to stand up in His strength, focused on His glory. Why? Because that's what He did when He came into the world. Focused on glorifying and honoring His Heavenly Father. No matter what it cost Him, even if He needed to be poured out, but poured out, for the glory and the honor of His God. So if we're going to faithfully walk with our God and with our King, we're going to need to stand up in the strength of our God. We're going to need to be prepared to be poured out for the glory of our God. But lastly, we're going to need to be always on the lookout for the grace of our God. I don't know if you noticed... I had a hard time reading a lot of these names at the end. Some of them were like, man, I've never even heard of these guys. But one of them we've heard of, haven't we? 
The last one. Uriah the Hittite. It's like the author of 2 Samuel is trying to draw our attention to something by bringing this guy up again. Wouldn't it be better just to forget him and to forget what happened? I mean, this is all about bringing back up David's sin, isn't it? His rebellion, his cold-heartedness towards your people, towards the nations. He was a Hittite, remember? Will sin have the last word? It seems that you're just wanting to rub David's reputation, his face, our thoughts in his sin. Or is there something else going on? Because this isn't going to be the last time that Uriah comes up. In Matthew, in the New Testament, when he's given us the genealogy of Jesus, he talks about Solomon being born to David by the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Again, bringing up this sin. You see, Maybe in your mind and in your own life, there's stuff from your past that haunts you. As you think about yourself, it defines you. You don't feel like you can escape it. It seems like that sin, that error, that thing that you just want to forget and wish it would go away. I repented of it. I confessed. But at times it just keeps coming back up in my mind. Will that sin define me? Will it have the last word? Does God just want to keep bringing it up to remind me? And like rubbing a dog's face in the mistake that he made on the carpet. Is there something else going on? It may seem like it's the last word. Uriah the Hittite. But... This isn't the end of the story, is it? More goes on. There's more after Uriah the Hittite. Matthew tells us that. David, the murderer of Uriah the Hittite, is the one through whom the heir comes. The Redeemer and Savior of the world. God uses a sinner like this to bring about the Redeemer of all sinners. God says, look, David, you are a sinner, yes, but I'm still going to work in you and through you. I'm not abandoning my promises. I'm not abandoning my work in my people. Sin doesn't have the last word. We must always be on the lookout for the grace and the mercy of our God because we're all sinners. We all have things like Uriah the Hittite in our past. Maybe we're the only ones that know about it. But guess who else knows about it? God. And when these reminders of our sin and our rebellion come up, what do they point us to? The grace 
and the mercy of our God and our King. Because our hope isn't in ourselves. It's not in our own righteousness. It's not in David. It's in the one who came, who was without sin, who redeemed and saved David, and who redeemed and saved you. What haunts you? What's at the end of your list? Do you want to know what the last word is about that sin? And what your God says? If you look and hope and trust in Jesus, the one who died on the cross for sinners, then his word is it's finished. His word is that debt is canceled. His word is, I've removed it as far as the east is from the west. May it come up in your mind and your heart again? Yeah. But what should that do? It should point us to worship and praise and celebrate the God of grace and mercy who will not let sin have the last word. Whose Son came and defeated sin and defeated death and defeated the evil one. And will one day bring ultimate victory when His kingdom comes and there is no more sin. There is no more shame. There is no more death. But we dwell in the presence of our victorious King forever. We serve a good and a gracious God. And that's what drives and motivates us to stand up in His strength. To delight to be poured out for His glory. Because everywhere we look, in our lives, in our story, we behold His grace and His mercy. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the good, good news of the Gospel. We thank You that You have sent Jesus, our Redeemer, our Defender, our Friend, and our King. Move our hearts to cling and hope and rest and trust in Him. Draw our eyes and our attention to Your grace. May You continue to proclaim it louder and louder and louder until it's all we hear. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.